Okay. Think you know what a bad day looks like? Think again. <laughs> One ordinary family. Shouldn't you guys be up? Is taking bad days. Oh, come on! To a whole new level. I have an interview today. You guys are ready for you. Your kid's face is all green. It's not poisonous. I don't think it's poisonous. Mom, Dad's on fire. I hope so. No, 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 he's really on fire. I'll be your driving examiner. I don't think he passed. This October. This day has been terrible. Okay. Yes! Let's go, Wreck-It Ralph. Prepare for the best, worst day of your life. Disney's Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Daddy wishes he could swear right now. So I think perhaps the characters in that film, if they knew their Bible, might recall this verse at that point. Romans 7, 24. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Let's just focus on that first part of the verse. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Some of you here are saying to yourselves today, wow, I'm sure glad that my days in my life are not like that. But I'm pretty sure there's a lot of others here that are saying, very bad day. I'm not impressed by that. I had a really bad, awful year. One wreck after another. And you're not alone in that. You are not alone in those experiences you are not alone in those kind of feelings. Now, my name is Mark Benson. I'm one of the elders here at Messiah Park Community Church, and the title of our message today is Even Now. And perhaps it could have been called my, my terrible, horrible, no good, very bad, messed up life or year, which sounds a lot like the name of a children's book where there was a, a young boy named Alexander, and he had a really bad day, and he thought if he could just move to Australia... Somehow it would all get better. And, and I think a lot of us start to think that way too, right? If we could just change that circumstance, things would get all better. But, but Alexander got good advice from his mother that, you know, people still have bad days and years and lives in Australia. So we need to, we need to get that in our head too. I, I believe God gave me this message, not just in memory of a, a book or a movie, but because it will speak into the real lives of our church family and, and God willing, even beyond our walls. Plenty of us have experienced not just bad days, but bad months and years that just never seem like they're going to turn around. And they're definitely not getting fixed just by a change in location. So in the limited time we have today, we're going to outline just a few situations from the Bible that were placed there for our instruction and for our good. So here's the first one, Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and they made off with them and they put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came. The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. But while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties. They swept down on your camels and they made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. But while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came. 
and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, and suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job's livelihood is gone. His possessions are gone. His children are all dead. He is having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And, and there's no prospects of it getting any better. And that's not all. After this, Job, his entire body becomes afflicted with incurable boils. And his wife tells him that he should just curse God and die. And maybe worst of all these things is his friends show up to sympathize with him. And nearly the entire book of Job, the next 36 chapters, records his friends berating him and telling him what an awful guy he is. The good news is that for those of you who know the story, the end has Job physically healed. His relationship with his wife is restored. He has many more children that he loves and he cherishes and he becomes wealthier than he ever was before. And that's amazing. But I submit to you that greater things than those happen in Job's life through this pain and through these circumstances. And that even if his earthly fortunes had never been restored, that the good would have been done in his life. You see, as Job was in the middle of those circumstances, he wanted more than anything to make his case to God personally about the injustice that had been done to him. And he got his audience with God, but it was not what he expected. When he experienced the presence of God, we see this. Job 40. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. And then first, or chapter 42 says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. So underline, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. See, you've got to know that Job was the best of the best. He was the premier businessman of his day. He was a fantastic father, and God himself called him blameless and upright. And yet when God spoke to Job out of that storm, Job could only see himself as unworthy to even be in God's presence. So point one in your outline, God's plans for me are beyond my understanding. God's plans for me are beyond my understanding. Job had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. He, he had no thought that his fortunes would ever turn back around. But that was always God's plan. Now, a second lesson from Job is really a profound truth that he realized when he was in God's presence. Job 42 says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Underline no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's a truth reaffirmed in Psalms 33. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. So number two is, God is all-powerful, and his plans will not fail. God is all-powerful, and his plans will not fail. Now here's our second situation. 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah said to Ahab, king of Israel, as the Lord... The God of Israel lives whom I serve. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. 
And the following verses are God commanding Elijah to run to the border, to hide in a ravine, to drink stream water, and to get fed by ravens. And I have a picture here today depicting Elijah eating there at the border. Uh, wait a minute, wait, wait. Oh, I'm, I'm being told that is not Elijah from the Old Testament. It's actually Elijah Wood, the actor, eating a taco. I, I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but here's a relevant fact. The, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology says that common ravens will eat almost anything they can get a hold of. They eat grains and buds and berries, eggs, fish, small animals from the size of mice and baby tortoises, uh, grasshoppers, beetles, scorpions, carrion, wolf dung, and garbage. Well, I hope the grace of God extended to instructing those ravens to bring Elijah the good stuff, because there's a lot in that list I don't think I could stomach. And I didn't see any tacos. So, later the stream dries up. Elijah is told to go live with a widow, and he actually gets an upgrade from raven food. He gets daily bread and water. And according to 1 Kings 18, after a long time, the third year of the famine, the next big event for Elijah was that showdown on Mount Carmel between him and the prophets of Baal, 450 of them against little old Elijah. But God prevailed for Elijah. And after that, Queen Jezebel, when hearing that her prophets were defeated, swore that she would kill Elijah. And so he left town, and he walked 41 days through the desert to Mount Horeb. And there he heard the voice of God, and a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, and there was an earthquake, and there was fire and about this time, I think I'm getting pretty frazzled. But then came the gentle whisper, 1 Kings 19. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. And then the Lord said to him, Go and return the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, there you're to anoint Haziel, king over Aram, and you're to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha as prophet in your place. And then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Circle go and return by the way you came. You remember that Elijah just got done walking 41 days to get here. And we don't see it written in Scripture here, but in the course of researching this sermon, I, I have uncovered an ancient artifact that I believe may be a record of that missing conversation where Elijah responds to God when he says this. Let's take a look. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. You don't think that's real? Okay, well, I better check with our media department here and see if we can get our Elijah clips checked up on because I'm, I'm not doing very well today there. <sighs> Elijah, you know, he couldn't have anticipated the ravens or the widow. He would have never thought up Mount Carmel or this Mount Horeb experience. 
He just didn't know what God had in store. And, and so point three in your outline is, God's plans for me are beyond my understanding. God's plans for me are beyond my understanding. They definitely are. Now there's a second lesson from Elijah. God told him to anoint Haziel and Jehu and Elisha into leadership roles. And God corrected Elijah because he had said, I'm the only one left faithful to you, God. I'm the only prophet of God there is. And, but yet in this passage we just read, God said, no, there are 7,000 in Israel that have remained faithful to me. And not only that, in 1 Kings 18, we actually read that there's a devoted man named Obadiah who hid 100 prophets of God in caves to keep them safe from the evil king and queen. God's plans were beyond Elijah's understanding and ours too. But what do we learn from this 7,000 and this 100? And that's really point four in your outline. God ensures you are never alone. You are never alone. There are others out there experiencing the same things you are. There are others out there who can support you, who can strengthen you, who can empathize with you. And sometimes it's hard to find those people. You don't know who they are. But even in those cases, you know that God is always there with you. And he's not just beside you, but he says he will fill you up just as much as you will let him. He will give you strength and joy and peace and hope. All right. Third scenario, 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel and David and David's father and brothers were there and they saw this. But really, no one else knew this happened, including Saul, the reigning king of Israel. In the course of time, David ends up joining Saul's army. And he did very well there. In 1 Samuel 18, it says, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to King Saul with singing and with dancing and joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. And they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Now you need to know that, that David was fully devoted to Saul. He had no schemes. He had no ill will. He looked upon King Saul as Lord, as anointed king, and he served him that way with a pure heart. And, but Saul was not so pure of heart. 1 Samuel 19 says, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. So David had to flee into the wilderness. And he didn't just walk like Elijah, and he didn't just wander the desert like the 40 years of the Israelite exile. No, David was pursued hotly, and frequently by Saul's army who were trying to kill him. He had to seek refuge with the priests or in the open fields. He stayed in caves and even with the enemies of Israel. And he was often in difficulty, in fear of his life. He was hungry and thirsty and tired. And there were many close calls like what we read in 1 Samuel 23. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were going on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. 
And as Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came. And he said to Saul, come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. And Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. There were two times that David had the opportunity to quickly and conveniently just kill Saul and end it all. But he was clear in his conscience and he was clear in commanding his men that he and they would not do that. They would not kill the Lord's anointed under any circumstances. Can I tell you the end of the story? David becomes king. Despite everything standing in his way of him ever getting that job, despite starting as a shepherd boy, despite this this king who was in place already trying to kill him over and over and over again, despite the time that David spent living amongst Israel's enemies, it just seems so impossible that God's word for David could ever come true. But it did. And I hope this theme is becoming familiar to you as you look at point five in your outline. God's plans for me are beyond my understanding. Now we could spend a lot of time going into a lot of detail about tense situations that David experienced, but let's just say this. It was 15 years from that scene we saw where he was anointed until he actually was crowned king. But even then, he was only king over part of Israel because there was a mighty resistance from Saul's relatives trying to retain the kingship. And it took another seven years before the country was whole under David. And even then, after David was king, there were things he wanted to accomplish. And he just couldn't get them done in his lifetime. And so he had to turn those over to his son Solomon to trust him to accomplish those. How many times do you think David wanted to give up? We know he had lots of opportunities to take things into his own hands, like those situations where he could have killed Saul. And the Psalms speak to David's heart many times in many situations. But these things are also reflected in the New Testament. So I want to give you a New Testament verse here, 1 Corinthians 10. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. So you can circle those words, temptations, and tempted, and tempted. You get the repetition there. You see, those are the word parasmos, which does mean temptation, but also means trial or test. It's something you have to go through. And it's clear from the scripture here that this is not optional. It says, when you are tempted. When? When you are tempted. But did you catch the good news at the end? Underline, you can endure it. There's a reason you can endure it. And that's six in your outline. God will see you through time and circumstances. God will see you through time and circumstances. We cling to God. We choose to remain in relationship with him, following his commands, walking in his ways, even and especially when everything looks like it's fallen down around us. Even and especially when we see that side door and we think, wow, that'd be a great way out, except we realize it's not God's will, so we don't take it. Let's just stop for a word of caution. You see, there was Job, but then there was those Chaldean raiders, and there were the Sabaeans, and there were those misinformed friends, and, and there was Elijah, but there was also Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal and all those people just kind of standing idly by there. And there was David, but then there was Saul 
And there was this guy named Doeg the Edomite and others who were taking opportunity at people's misfortune. And, and the point is that there are people who are on the wrong side of God's plans. There are people who are making themselves enemies and opponents of God. They, they think they're well, they think they're on the right path, but they're sick. They think they're leading the way forward, but they're blind and they're lost. Jesus said in Luke 6, But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. For you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And, and throughout the rest of Luke 6, Jesus provides us tests that we can use on ourselves to see how we're doing there. Are we, are we friends of God or are we enemies of God? Do we do good for, do we bless, do we pray for those who hate us and persecute us, or do we hate them back? Do we condemn? Or do we forgive? Do we have a life that's producing good fruit? Or is the produce of our life kind of more like thorns and thistles? Is our firm foundation Christ Jesus? Or is it anything else at all, which is just shifting sand? 2 Corinthians 13 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. See, we have to stay fully engaged with Christ every day, all the time. And whenever we start to stray away from that, we've got to run back to him as fast as we can. Because really the, the very worst place to be is thinking you were well when you're not. Revelation 3 says, I know your deeds that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. You do not realize you're wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. That word lukewarm is tepid or unenthusiastic, apathetic, muted, indifferent, uninterested. So if God's just one thing out there on your list of to-dos, but he's not really your highest priority or... If, if serving in your church family here just seems like a burden rather than something that gets you excited, if, if living out that life of godliness and being in prayer, just they feel like weights and burdens instead of buoys lifting you higher, then you're probably in that lukewarm place. David, after he became king, he fell into a series of sins, and he tried to convince himself that he was still on the right path, that and he could have gone on that way, self-justifying his actions, denying God's truth. But what he did is he stopped. And he got down on his face and he repented and he confessed to God. And he said what we're going to read here in Psalm 51 in just a second. If you have any inkling, though, that you're, that you're heading toward that lukewarm place or if you're there, I'd like you to speak this confession with me out loud, just like David did, in the name of Jesus. So here it is, if you'd like to say it out loud with me. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. That's a great place to be. If we confess that honestly, we stand sure-footed on solid ground together with God. We're with Him rather than opposed to Him. 
And we know that his plans are for us and not against us. And we know we are never alone, but we're in good company. And we lean on God to see us through our circumstances. And even better is that we know on the other side of all these earthly circumstances, the great and glorious future prepared for us. And that our earnest confession and our turning from our own ways to God's ways just lets his mercies pour out upon us. So we're going to get a little application here. So let's look at one last event in the history of Israel. Tough times. Joel 1. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. The fields are destroyed. The grain is destroyed. The harvest of the field has perished. The grapevine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. All the trees of the orchards are withered. Indeed, human joy is dried up. The seeds lie shrivel in their casings and the storehouses are in ruin. And the granaries are broken down because the grain has withered away. Oh, how the animals groan. The herds of cattle wander in confusion since they have no pasture and even the flocks suffer punishment. Fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness and flames have devoured all the trees of the countryside. See, the land of Israel was in total disaster and in this case it was a result of their sin. And you could just use your imagination from this passage. Four waves of locusts, each devouring whatever the last one had left behind. No crops, no grass, no food for people, no food for animals. And on top of it all, a fire sweeps across the land and just crisps whatever might be there, like the bare trees. And the bottom line is it was bad. It was worse than your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year, life, month, whatever. It was bad. But whether you experience trouble because of sin or whether you're going through a trial, Joel 2 provides us some answers. It says, even now, this is the Lord's declaration, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. Underline even now. See, God says to you today, as he originally said to Israel, even now, whatever's happened, wherever you've been, whatever you've gone through, even now, you're still breathing. Seek the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Give your troubles to God. It might seem like there's no hope left. But you're still on this side of eternity. And God declares himself gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love. And he relents from sending disaster. I want to give you a few action steps. But first, I want to make sure that uh, we answer that question we had at the beginning of the sermon. I don't know if you remember, Romans 7.24 had a statement, Oh, what a miserable person I am. And it had a question. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Was it Job's righteousness that created the turnaround in his life? Was it Elijah's awesome faith and courage that marched him back from Mount Horeb into Damascus? Was it David's perfect sinless life that made him right with God? No, no, no. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And I think if we brought some of the kids over from Suntown, they would say, Jesus. 
right? They just need a couple Bible classes to get that. And, and we get that in our head, don't we? But we seem to lose it in our hearts sometimes as adults. We start trying to earn God's approval. But Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. And 1 Timothy 1.15 says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save. He came to help those who could not help themselves. And our action steps here are not to earn God's approval, but just to help us to enjoy a more intimate fellowship with God. So let's take a look. From this passage in Joel, it says, Turn to me with all your heart. So A, in your outline, give God first place in your life, in troubles and everything else. Give God first place in your life, in troubles and in everything else. And then next it says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in faithful love. God is not meant to be this far-off master that we just serve. He, he offers to call us friend. He offers to let us get to know him in a personal way. And so that's B in your outline. Cultivate a personal relationship with God. Personal relationship. And finally, the last verse, it says, he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer grain and new wine to the Lord your God. Can you underline so you can offer grain and new wine? See, our tendency is we obtain relief from God and then we jump right back into doing life our own way with him on the sidelines, without his input, without his blessing, and eventually we, we hit another wall and we repent and we seek God again. But instead, what we should do is see, practice thankfulness to God. And that idea is nothing new. The Old Testament had the, the, the idea of sacrifices, right? And people's sacrifices to atone for sin. Praise God, we have Jesus Christ who now does that for us. But they also had the tithe to support the temple and the church. But then there were these other ideas that people overlook so often. Free will offerings and thank offerings voluntarily given to God because people were just expressing their thankfulness for all the goodness of God in their lives. So I encourage you, to take time remembering, just think about what God has done for you already in your life. Don't forget those things. Look around you and see the blessings that God is pouring out around you. And when you make that next request to God, include in that time thanking him in advance for the good that he's going to do because he says he does good for those who love him. So I've just briefly given you a few action steps today, putting God first in every area of your life, getting personal with God, living out thankfulness. So I hope those are helpful to you, but again, we had to be brief. I'm hoping that the 40 days of prayer that we've just come out of have really given you some good tools. But next week, because I don't have the time today, I'm hoping what you'll get, God willing, is some really good specific tools that'll just help you in that daily time with God, that relationship, that growing sense of his goodness and his glory and his blessing in your lives. But until then... Just plan to be here next week, and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are not a God just far away, but a God nearby. Not to just sit here and beat us up and scorn us, Lord, but you, you came, the message of Christmas. You came to this world as a man 
to live and experience life just as we did, but live it sinlessly to die on our behalf and to save our souls. And it's not too much, Lord, for us to be thankful for that and all the other things you do in our lives. It's a great privilege. So, Lord, I pray that we would, wherever our circumstances have taken us this year, turn our back on where we've been and just strive forward with you into a great new year. You're the awesome God, Lord. We trust in you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.